It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, did you see that the first game kicking off the NFL season got a monster rating? This was Thursday night. Uh, Of course, if you have Tom Brady and Tampa Bay playing Dallas and Brady engineers in one of his patented comebacks on the last two minutes, you're going to get a lot of viewers. But uh, 26 million viewers, according to NBC, uh, best opener since 2015. I, I think it also reflects a hunger for people to kind of want the normalcy of rooting for their teams and sports back to normal. I also spent a lot of time last night watching the final of the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic uh, one match away from winning the Grand Slam, winning all the four major tennis tournaments, but he got whipped. Uh, he just got outplayed by a Russian phenom named Medvedev. And, uh, you know, he had a great year, and he just didn't have the speed or, you know, I think he just got tired because he had all these four- and five-set matches, you know, every other day during this tournament. But what an incredible year for him. Um, I want to talk a little bit about yesterday's Media Buzz. I really enjoyed doing the show. Uh, We focused, of course, in part on the legacy of 9-11 and how we had gone from moments of unity to a much more polarized media, polarized culture, polarized political world. And had Ari Fleischer on, the former Bush press secretary, and he said his biggest frustration in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 is that reporters were asking all these questions and they couldn't provide the answers because they didn't know. And of course, he didn't want to say something that was wrong. He also said that the honeymoon that George W. Bush enjoyed in the wake of those attacks lasted about three months. And then he said the press was tired of Bush having a, you know, 75, 80, at one point, 90 percent approval rating. Uh, and so turned on him after the collapse of Enron. It was just interesting to get his perspective and had a chance to talk to uh, my old friend Andrew Sullivan, who I think is one of the most brilliant and courageous writers of his generation. Uh, he had a lot to say about woke newsrooms and li- liberal culture. And here's a guy who got fired by New York Magazine, even though he came to admire Barack Obama, did not like Donald Trump. Uh, and it just said a lot about the changing nature of, um, of of American journalism, really. But for me, the other backstage story is, um, just on Friday before we did the show over the weekend, uh, I, along with lots of other people, moved into the renovated Fox newsroom in the Washington Bureau. It had been under construction for well over a year. It was obviously delayed by COVID. And it's just this, you know, glittering, ultra-modern, high-tech newsroom. It's really quite dazzling. Uh, I also managed to get lost a lot in it. Uh, but some of the tech I haven't quite figured out. So I go into my new office, and, and, and the computer is set up there, and there's two big monitors. And I know a lot of offices have that, but I've always used one. So I'm trying to figure out, like, how do you drag the cursor from one to the other? and Why, when I click here on the right monitor, the thing shows up on the left monitor? Uh, so that's taking some getting used to. Also, you know, everywhere I've ever worked, I've had like two or three TVs on the desk so I can monitor all the media coverage. Well, TVs are out. Now we have this sort of one flat screen with a little box that controls it. You can get like four screens at once, like a quad, which is, you know, ideal for somebody like me. You can watch Fox, MSNBC, CNN, Fox Business, uh, the broadcast networks, whatever you want, all at the same time. 
The problem is I have no idea how to work this thing. Somebody showed me it went in one ear and out the other. Uh, so I tried to change the channel so I could watch Fox News Sunday. I couldn't do that. I couldn't figure out how to get the audio to come up for whatever was the selected thing on the quad you wanted to watch. Now, I'm not bad at technology. I'm not a Luddite. I can navigate my way around social media pretty well. But this was all new to me. And then I wanted to throw some stuff away. And I went to uh, management and I said, I need a little garbage pail here. You know, stuff, you know, we didn't have any pens or pads. It's all, you know what happens when you move. You can't find anything. Well, I was told, no garbage pail for you or for anybody that they want us to have to get up out of, from our desks and walk across the newsroom and throw our trash away in one of these big bins because it's good for exercise. It's an ergonomically correct thing to do. And I'm kind of thinking like I, I can be in charge of my own exercise. I just want a little pail. I don't want my stuff, my, you know, the wrappers from my lunch to pile up, but I guess I'll try to get with the program Get up every time I need to throw something away. Uh, it's a new world, stuff we didn't used to worry about. It used to have a, when I started out in this business, I had a manual typewriter. I had a garbage pail to be sure. Uh, I didn't have a TV on the desk. I had no computer system. That took some getting used to. So um, we'll just adapt to the latest iteration. All right, a lot to get to here on the Monday podcast. Hope you had a good weekend. Story number one. A lot of people beating up on Joe Biden. And what's fascinating about this is, if you take a snapshot of the Biden presidency, let's just say in June, the feeling was he was doing pretty well. I mean, his approval ratings were in the low to mid-50s, which is pretty good in today's hyper-polarized culture. Um, it looked like, I mean, the, the rate of uh, new COVID cases and COVID deaths had plummeted. Uh, vaccines were available to anybody who wanted them, and people were, were still getting them at a fairly rapid clip. Um, also, uh, President Biden had uh, passed the COVID relief bill, trillion-dollar bill. He was on his way to passing the trillion-dollar infrastructure package with 17 Republican votes. So not a bad start. I mean, he had his problems, certainly at the border, absolutely, uh, and other things that comes with the territory. And now, and I think, look, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that the tipping point here was Afghanistan because even though, you know, 77% of the country in polls say they wanted to pull out, Donald Trump wanted to pull out, he set it in motion. Despite all of that, um, you know, the way in which this was botched, the way in which American citizens and Afghan allies were not evacuated, uh, the, the horrible situation at the airport, the violence, the chaos, the killing of the 13 American service members it did more than provide a major political blow to Joe Biden. It raised serious questions about his competence. And so what I'm, what, what's noteworthy here about the two pieces I'm going to share with you, they're, they're both by conservatives, but they're by uh, one conservative who, who at least has tried to be fair to Biden. Another actually uh, didn't like Trump so much that he kind of supported Joe Biden. And so there's, it's more in sort of sorrow than in anger, that they're practically declaring the Biden presidency over. And I have to jump in and say, just as the honeymoon period and all the positive coverage in June was just a snapshot in time, what we have now is a snapshot in time. By the time we get to November of 2022, it could well be that this was the turning point that started Biden on a downward uh, spiral toward what everybody expects will be a loss of control in the House of Representatives, even if Biden was doing a great job 
because of gerrymandering, because the president's party virtually always loses seats in the first off-year election. And, you know, they, the Dems only have a five-seat majority, so it doesn't. It takes a six-seat swing. And we're going to probably see a lot more than that. In any event, here's Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, saying, you know, remember all the stories about uh, Joe Biden would be the next LBJ? He says, well, it might be coming true, but not, not the LBJ uh, of 64 and 65 when he was passing Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and Medicare and Medicaid and all the social legislation, but... The Lyndon Johnson of 1967, who was deeply unpopular, the war in Vietnam was out of control, the country was being torn apart, casualties were very high, and he was so unpopular that in March of 1968, he announced that he wasn't running again. He was pulling out of the campaign. Uh, so what's happened is, in Lowry's analysis, that Biden was always a default president elected in opposition to Donald Trump. Uh, now he's lost his foil in Trump, says Rich. He's not driving, Trump is not driving every news cycle. We'll come back to Trump uh, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, the botching of Afghanistan uh, is a signal event. Uh, it's possible, says Lowry, the harmful political effect will wear off over time. But presidents have to seem in control. And Biden doesn't seem in control. And now, of course, you have COVID that seems out of control. And, you know, he's come came out with the mandates last week, and we'll see how that turns out. Privately, writes Lowry, Democrats must know that his performances at, at his press conferences weren't reassuring. Uh, the problem Biden has is any act of incompetence will, failure or not, raise questions about his age, even if he would have done exactly the same thing at 38 that he's now done at 78. Uh, he doesn't have a strong position because of very narrow margins in Congress, including the 50-50 Senate, of course. Uh, Biden can't lose anyone in the Senate. This is why Joe Manchin has so much influence. Uh, and so the moderate wing of the party, the Manchin types, can kill off the big spending plans, this $3.5 trillion bill that Biden wants to pass after or with the trillion-dollar bipartisan bill, which, by the way, still hasn't gotten final passage, keep in mind. Or the left wing of the party, uh, rooted in the House, which can kill off anything that it sees as not spending enough money on social problems, climate change, and so forth and so on. So the other piece is by Brett Stevens uh, of the New York Times, who is a fierce never-Trumper. And he says, he's writing about the 20th anniversary, he says, this September 11th, a diminished president will preside over a diminished nation. This was written slightly before uh, Saturday. Uh, we're a country that could not keep a demagogue from the White House, could not stop an insurrectionist mob from storming the Capitol, could not win or at least avoid losing a war against a morally and technologically retrograde enemy, cannot conquer a disease for which there are safe and effective vaccines, which continues to drive me crazy, and many other people as well, cannot bring itself to trust government, news media, scientific establishment, police, or any other institution. So that's a pretty dire picture. Joe Biden was supposed to be the man of the hour, a calming presence exuding decency, moderation, and trust. He sold himself as a transitional president, fatherly figure in the mode of George H.W. Bush. Instead, Biden has become the emblem of the hour, headstrong but shaky, ambitious but inept. He seems to be the last person in America, says Stevens, to realize that whatever the theoretical merits of the decision to withdraw our remaining troops from Afghanistan, 
The military and intelligence assumptions on which it was built were deeply flawed. The manner in which it was executed was a national humiliation and a moral betrayal. Uh, and then it gets to the, the, the big spending bills, the multi-trillion dollar bills. Uh, maybe Biden supposes that the legislation, if passed, will prove increasingly, increasingly popular over time, like Obamacare. Or he could suffer a legislative calamity like Hillary Clinton's health care reform in 1994. And then he goes into the math of, you know, very likely to lose uh, the House like in 2010 when Obama's Democratic Party lost 63 House seats. What Brett Stevens says is that Biden should acknowledge publicly the gravity of the administration's blunders. In Afghanistan, maybe Tony Blinken should resign, he says. Joe Manchin says there should be a strategic pause, not go ahead with a three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill. Uh, Biden might seize upon that. My sense, says Stevens, and I agree with him on this, is that Biden will do neither. Uh, And he concludes by saying Biden has proven to be proud, inflexible, and thinks he's much smarter than he really is, that that's bad news for the administration and for the country. Well, you know, uh, when things are going badly, you know, the buck stops here, as Harry Truman said, and you get the blame. And Joe Biden knows this. He's been around forever. 36 years in the Senate, eight years as vice president. Uh, I think he knew when he was riding high that that was not going to last. The question is now that he's riding low after these terrible setbacks. And I think the COVID Delta surge is a big part of this. Um, Whether he thinks he can come back, whether in fact he can come back. Story number two, speaking of COVID, um, has to do with the schools. New York City public schools today reopening uh, fully for everybody uh, for the first time. That's a pretty big deal, nation's largest school system. But the rest of the schools uh, are not doing so far what President Biden says they need to do. According to the New York Times, out of the 100 largest districts, um, nine out of 10 are requiring students to wear masks, according to some research group. Um, But just one quarter of those 100 are requiring teachers to be vaccinated, just 25 or so percent. That's hard for me to understand, especially when you have the kids under 12 who right now cannot get the shots and won't be able to to at least November. 15 out of 100 are regularly testing students. Biden talks about ramping up testing. Well, it's, it's hard and expensive to get tests and to get rapid tests as opposed to we have to wait three days. And the quarantine policies in schools are much less strict than they were last spring. I, I have mixed views on that. You know, you don't want to shut down a class or a school every time one person gets it. Uh, In any event, none of the 100 school districts have stopped offering full-time in-person instruction. That's good. Uh, But you've had a lot of last-minute scrambling. Only one school district, the big Los Angeles Unified School District, is requiring vaccines for eligible students and uh, as well also requiring vaccines for teachers. 27 of the 100 districts require teaching and other school staff to be vaccinated. The Biden administration says it's going to require that federally employed teachers, you know, if you're working for Head Start uh, or programs like that, will be vaccinated. But basically, you know, schools are run by the states and are run by local school districts. So they have to decide whether they want to, and obviously this is controversial in states like Florida and Texas, or have the capability of imposing uh, tighter restrictions on vaccination and so forth.
Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's get to number three. Two uh, stories coming out about Trump. Politico's Playbook has the scoop about a forthcoming book by former Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, who was on my show a number of times when she worked in the White House. She had worked for Melania Trump. Then she moved over to become White House uh, Press Secretary. Um, she, She got a bum rap, I think, in that she never held a press briefing, but ultimately that was not her decision. It was Donald J. Trump's decision. Uh, and then when she left her tenure when a new chief of staff came in, she went back to Melania and she became Melania's chief of staff. Well, now she's coming out with a book that looks, according to this, like it's going to be pretty critical. Uh, for example, um, after the January 6th uh, and during that disputed transition period, uh, Stephanie Grisham asked Melania if she should reach out to Jill Biden to set up the traditional meetings, usually a tea between the outgoing and incoming first ladies. Uh, but instead, Melania told her that they should wait and see what the West Wing does. Uh, Grisham writing that Melania believed, just like her husband, the election was illegitimate. Okay, uh, here is uh, Melania Trump's office putting out a statement. Tough statement, as you might expect. The intent behind this book is obvious. It is an attempt to redeem herself after a poor performance as press secretary, failed personal relationships, and unprofessional behavior in the White House. Through mistruth and betrayal, she seeks to gain relevance and money at the expense of Mrs. Trump. Um, okay, well, look, uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to Stephanie Grisham. I hope I will have a chance to interview her. She obviously must have known if she wrote a book that was going to be critical of both Trumps, given that she was sort of part of the inner circle, that there would be some pretty strong pushback. Um, she writes in the book that Melania's response to her text on January 6th, Stephanie had suggested, do you want to put out a, a tweet saying every American has the right to protest, but lawlessness and violence are completely unacceptable? You know, kind of a balanced view as the Capitol had been taken over by the rioters. And Melania wrote back one word, no. And according to Stephanie Grisham, that broke her. And she ended up resigning before you know, the term had expired. Now, according to the Grisham book, she sees Melania Trump like the doomed French queen. Dismissive, defeated, detached. Well, you'll hear a lot more about that. Meanwhile, um, Donald Trump had an interesting weekend. Um, you know, you had all the former presidents. You had, the, you had President Biden. Bill Clinton and Barack Obama at ground zero for the solemn ceremonies there. You also had Biden going to the two other locations, obviously the Pentagon and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You had George W. Bush going to Shanksville, Pennsylvania and giving a speech in which he decried the fading of the unity that uplifted the country, I would say, in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001. He said, Lot, uh, most of our politics today seems... Uh, to be about raw anger, uh, and he used words like that. But Donald Trump, he did go to New York. He had his own event where he met with New York City policemen. I think he met with fire fighters as well. Uh, he took some questions from reporters. Uh, he told the police officers, and this is part of what I talked about on the show when I talked about last week on the podcast about the growing hints that he may get back into the race. He said, it was a rigged election, and I can't say for election law reasons what I'm going to do, but I think you'll be very happy. I know what I'm going to do. So he's basically saying I'm running, but I can't say I'm running. 
even though people around him are not saying that he's going to announce soon. I don't think he's going to announce soon. He might announce soon. Who knows? What Trump is brilliant at is getting the press to write about all this stuff. Uh, so he criticized Biden for fleeing Afghanistan. He also did an interview with OAN on Friday in which he not only said the election was rigged, but he said, I believe that they will uh, throw the election out soon, that they will invalidate the 2020 election. That is not going to happen. I know anybody who believes that. I don't think Donald Trump really believes the 2020 election is going to be thrown out, but he throws these things out because it pleases his base. So then he went back to Florida and he did sort of color commentary uh, for these boxing matches. He has a history with that, with his casinos and so forth. It's a $50 pay-per-view. There were two different feeds. One, I guess you didn't have to pay uh, as much money and you just got to watch the boxing. The other was an alternate telecast with featuring Donald Trump. So one of the, uh, one of the boxing matches that Trump uh, was a commentator on was Evander Holyfield. He's 58 years old. He gets out there. It's a complete joke. He puts his gloves up. He lost his footing. He stumbled into the ropes. The ref stopped it after two minutes. I'm not going to go into the, it's a metaphor for anything, but uh, I think people might have feel, felt cheated on that. It was a stupid idea. Okay, so why did Trump do what he did on the weekend? Why would he, why would he stand, says Politico, with Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden at ground zero when he could surprise police officers and firefighters? They wanted to take photos with him. They wanted to ask him questions. He met their adoring smiles with his own. Uh, watching Trump on Saturday, he appeared at once to be a person iced out of the political spotlight and unwilling to cede it, um, devoting his time to appearances that, depending on your view, either made perfect political sense or none at all. All right, number four, tomorrow is the California recall. Uh, all of the polls now indicate, of course, I think in a special election like this, turnout can throw out all the assumptions, but the polls seem to indicate that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has rebounded, that he's going to win this recall easily. Remember, he just has to get 50% plus one. And some polls have him as high as 60. I don't know whether that'll be the case. Um, the Atlantic has a piece about Larry Elder, who I had on my show a couple of weeks ago. You know, talk radio host, provocative, never run political office before, ran a six-week campaign. Uh, this is the, the Atlantic's liberal view. Larry Elder becoming governor of California would be a little like Bernie Sanders winning a Senate seat in Kansas or AOC representing suburban Mississippi in the House. But... It still could happen. Um, 42% of respondents in one poll uh, support the recall. So that means that, remember, if Gavin Newsom gets to 50, it's over. But it, it's, it's one of, it's real, what's really weird about this, this was a progressive reform put in by a guy named Hiram Johnson in 1911. Part of it was a referenda, which of course are huge in California, which is not that hard to get a, uh, at a ballot on the uh, initiative on the ballot. And the recall is a two-part thing where the person being recalled, as happened to Gray Davis uh, when he lost to Arnold in 2003, if he can't get 50%, then the person with the next highest total becomes governor. So if Elder were to pull this out, it would mean, I mean, Gavin Newsom could get 49% of the vote, Elder could get 23, and he would still be the next governor at least for another year. Uh, but by the way, I, I, I think he's campaigned a little bit too much as a provocative radio host kind of guy. But here's a, a fascinating statistic in the state of California. Democrats, I mean, it's such a blue state, now account for 46% 
of all registered voters, says the New York Times, in California. Republican Party is down to 24% of the electorate. When Arnold won in 2003, it was 35%. And Arnold, of course, not only was a celebrity and a movie star, but, you know, he ran as a moderate Republican. He was a crossover candidate. Uh, He believed in combating climate change and things like that. Uh, Larry Elder has run, as he has been, you know, a conservative voice on the air, as a pretty hard-ride pro-Trump conservative, Uh, enough to fire up his base and make him the leading alternative to Newsom among some more established GOP types. Uh, but probably not enough to attract many Democratic votes. Uh, So we'll see what the outcome is tomorrow. And finally, number five, uh, I did an After the Buzz taping on this, but I've talked before, I think I talked late last week, about Elizabeth Holmes now on trial for Theranos, the company she founded that had this revolutionary blood test technology which turned out to be a scam. Uh, And it's really the biggest trial, I think, in Silicon Valley history because she was such a media darling. The interviews that were done with her on TV, the magazine cover stories were so fawning. She was the female Steve Jobs and so forth that you just wonder how the press could be taken in. But what's fascinating now is how she viewed the press according to evidence that has come out at this trial. I'm reading here from an account in the San Jose Mercury News. So she had this secret boyfriend guy named Sonny Balwani. He's also been criminally charged, but he'll be tried separately. And they found, you know, they're writing back and forth, you are a breeze in the desert for me and all of that. But but now looks like she may blame the mismanagement or fraudulent management, according to prosecutors, of this company on the now ex-boyfriend. That's not entirely clear, but certainly it was hinted at in the legal filings. So back in 2015, when, you know, this thing is riding high and she is the golden girl and all of that, uh, Wall Street Journal reporter I mentioned, John Carreyou, who I interviewed on the show um, sometime later, is getting ready is, is, is getting ready to expose this thing. And it's a lot of pressure on him. Uh, is the Wall Street Journal going to publish this piece? George Schultz, uh, former Secretary of State, was on the board. Well, it turns out that Elizabeth Holmes and the boyfriend were suspecting people who worked there of being sources for the journal reporter of, of, you know, secretly leaking what was going on there. And actually that was true. One of them was uh, Tyler Schultz, who was the grandson of George Schultz. Another one was an Asian American woman who worked there. So they're testing back and forth, texting back and forth, excuse me. In one, Elizabeth Holmes says to Balwani, missing you, and Balwani writes back, missing you too. And then he says, he's narrowed down the leakers to five people. We'll nail this mother blanker, he writes. Uh, and then the text messages show that, uh, you know, George Schultz's grandson and a woman named Erica Chung, who were later revealed to be whistleblowers, uh, they suspected them. Holmes and Therno spent $150,000 on private investigators to try to track down, dig up dirt on, discredit, what these people were doing. It was actually called the E. Chung and T. Schultz Project. So John Carreyou, his reporting starts the slow and painful decline for Theranos. Even then, 
Elizabeth Holmes went on TV, you know, oh, I am so saddened that certain things, the lab isn't working right, but we are in the process of fixing that. I mean, she clung to this and clung to this and clung to this. And here's the final uh, thing where, you know, as the story is breaking and as this is being exposed for the scam that it is, it will be up to a jury to decide whether it is criminal fraud or not. Her lawyers say, you know, the, the company failed, but lots of companies fail. That doesn't mean that she did anything illegal. So the journal is reporting this, and Balwani writes to Elizabeth Holmes. This one is fairly easy to get ahead of, so easy to knock legs off of, and we will also take legal action once this is behind us. And Holmes writes back, legal likely. So they were more worried about sort of, you know, protecting their image and getting back at the leakers and discrediting the Wall Street Journal story rather than dealing with the actual problems that they obviously must have known about. I mean, you were supposed to have this thing where you could just prick your finger, get a little bit of blood, and get an instant result. And actually, they were sending it off to Walgreens and Safeway. They didn't have the technology they claimed to have. According to prosecutors, they didn't have the money they claimed to have. They misled investors by claiming that they had all this money coming in. So that's why this trial has been so closely watched. And I've always taken a special interest in it. One reason being the media lionization of Elizabeth Holmes and how easily the business press, the tech press, as well as the mainstream media were fooled, a couple of exceptions, and also because this was single-handedly exposed by one dogged newspaper reporter. And it shows you the value of investigative reporting, which takes a lot of time, effort, money, and bravery to stand up to legal threads. You're facing a likely lawsuit, a libel suit. Um, so that was, you know, that story, when that story was published, that was a great day for journalists. And we'll see what happens in the trial. Once again, hope you had a terrific weekend. If you didn't get a chance to see Media Buzz, we got all the segments online on my Twitter and Facebook page, on the show's uh, Twitter and Facebook feed as well. We'll leave it right there. We hope you'll subscribe. Back tomorrow with more Buzz News. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.